Psalm 14. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, last week we looked at verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 14, and uh, we saw that combined with Romans 3, looking at those passages together, that no one is righteous. That when David talks about the fool saying in his heart, there is no God, that's not some people over there, that's all people everywhere, unless God breaks in, unless God gives us a new heart, a willingness to put our hope in Him, to stop running from Him and be reconciled to Him. All these are things that we don't naturally do, unless God does something to us, to call us to Himself, to make us His own. There is a righteousness that is revealed. A righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ from first to last. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3. So no one is righteous and yet by God's grace those who look to Jesus are accounted righteous in his sight for Christ's sake. Jesus became sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So that was the, the bad news and the good news that we saw last week. And now, in our text this morning, looking at the rest of chapter uh, of Psalm 14 and also reaching in quite a bit into 1 Peter, we ask the question, what does it look like then to live as a righteous generation? Remembering that it begins with this foundation of grace, No claim to have moral superiority over anyone else because we know that we were among those who were not righteous. And yet having been declared righteous, having been united to Jesus Christ so that we are being made righteous, being transformed into that which we have been declared to be, how then shall we live? What does it mean to live as a righteous generation. What does it look like to faithfully follow Christ in our cultural moment? The question is both obvious and it's pressing. Our world, our country, our city, our neighborhoods are polarized. Two doors down from me, I have a neighbor with a Trump flag on his garage. Two doors down from them, a neighbor with a rainbow flag. And I do not see them talking to each other much. That is the world in which we find ourselves. How does a righteous generation live in times such as these? How do we live 
as people of peace, people that have now experienced peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ and are beginning to experience more in our own lives God's peace, God's shalom, God's wholeness. How do we as people of peace live in a polarized world? That's the question we're going to wrestle with this morning. Along with that, we're going to ask the question, what should we expect as we do so? Because David answers that for us. And David also tells us, as a righteous people, living righteously in this world, that there is something that we can enjoy as well. So our, our three points for this morning will be simply this. How the righteous live, what the righteous should expect, and what the righteous will enjoy. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for preserving this psalm for us down to this very day. That we, O oh God, might know what it means for you to be with the righteous and to seek to live for your glory as such. And we ask that you would be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so how do the righteous live? Now, this first point is the longest of all the points. That was something I learned in homiletics class in seminary. If you're going to have one point longer than all the others, make sure it's the first point. So what that means is I'm going to get to the end of the first point, and you may be thinking the bills kick off at 4.30. Are we going to be home? You will be home by 4.30. You'll be home well before then. But just, you know, just know that when I say, and now secondly, there's really not a lot of time left in the sermon. Most of it's up front. Alright? Alright, so how do the righteous live? And we're going to see how that applies individually, how it applies as a church family, and how it applies in society. How do the righteous live? First, individually, Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. And I'll read them for you. If you've got a Bible, you can flip over there. Uh, let me read it. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So there is a word that you heard quite a bit repeated in there, and it was the word holy. What does it mean to live righteously as an individual, and that word holy captures it? Holy in the sense that we are seeking to live. Peter uses the word conduct. That we seek to live as those people who are holy in their conduct. Consecrated to God. Living for Him. We use the phrase often when we talk about what we're seeking to do when it comes to building disciples here at Grace Church or raising disciples. We're seeking to raise people who follow Jesus in the way of his kingdom. It's another way of describing what it means to live a holy or a consecrated life. Jesus said, follow me. Jesus said to his followers, seek first the kingdom. And so what does it mean to live a holy life? Yes, it means moral obedience to God's commands. It means taking our being set apart as God's from the world seriously. 
But it's not just a matter of external rights and wrongs, of doing the things that we're called to do and refraining from doing the things that we're told not to do. Although that is one aspect of what it means to be holy. It goes deeper. It goes down to the core of our being in which we say by God's grace, I am now going to live as he gives me the strength and relying on him as he requires of his people. Individual holiness. Personal moral purity. Knowing, as we saw in Psalm 24 as the call to worship, that no one apart from God's grace has the ability to enter his presence because none of us have clean hands and none of us have a pure heart. We are declared such by Jesus, by God in Christ. We are being made such by Christ as we are transformed into his image. The work of the Spirit of Christ in us. And because Jesus has made a way, Jesus has opened a way for us through his blood to be in relationship with God, we can approach Zion, God's holy habitation. Not as those who are holy enough to enter, but as those who have been declared holy, set apart as his own. This is the grace that compels us to live this way. Not seeking to earn something from God, but because we have God, we now seek to live for Him. Peter touched on that at the very beginning of of the passage in verse 13 that I read. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now early in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he talks about the grace that is already ours. We've been born again to a living hope. That new birth has happened. That inheritance is waiting. Peter says here, set your hope fully on that. The grace that is to come. And in so doing, live a holy life. A consecrated life. A life in which we are seeking first the kingdom. A life in which we are following Jesus in the way of his kingdom. So individually, holiness As a church family, we're going to look at John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23, and see the missional unity that Jesus prays for us to enjoy and to demonstrate to the world. So Jesus in John 17, 20 through 23, his high priestly prayer, prays these words for us. I do not ask for these only, speaking of his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that, here's the missional aspect, the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. It's a purposeful unity. It's a missional unity. It's a unity that exists in spite of our sinful tendencies. When I was in ninth grade, I was looking for a reason to walk away from the church, to walk away from God. And not surprisingly, I found an excuse in the church. These people don't really love one another. 
Now, I could have been going to any church in my little town of Temperance, Michigan, and I would have found the same excuse. Because we don't love each other well. But we've got Jesus praying for us. <laughs> Jesus is interceding in a high priestly prayer. Jesus continues to intercede to this very day. John tells us that. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter uh, 13, maybe. Check it later. Right? Jesus is interceding for us now. Part of what he's doing as he's praying for us now is that we will experience more of this unity in spite of our sinful tendencies so that the world might see us and think there's something going on there that can only be explained by Jesus. So unity that's purposeful. A unity Jesus prays we'll experience in spite of our sinful tendencies. A unity that Jesus prays that we will experience as well in the midst of great diversity. Now we tend to only think of that unity when it comes to the way in which we get along with each other. But the unity that Jesus prays for when it comes to his people is a unity that is a preview of the great community, the great unity that will exist around the throne of God in Revelation chapter 5. A multi-ethnic people of God from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. That too is a unity that Jesus is praying that we will experience now. So to whatever degree we can, you know, may there be a generational, a socioeconomic, an ethnic unity that exists within particular bodies of Christ in a location and bodies of Christ together as they worship the same God. Jesus prays for a missional unity. A people together that are not just at peace individually with God, but that are at peace with one another, that are now united to the vine. Listen, you can think of church in one of two ways. You can think of us as a sack of seed. Right? We're just all individual grains of, uh, you know, wheat, of seed, in a bag, and we're together. Or you can think of us as a cluster of grapes. And there's a sense in which both are true. We do exist individually. You don't lose your personhood when you become a Christian. You go out into your place, into your family, into your work, into your community, and you, you die to self. And you live for Christ. Because unless a kernel of seed fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bears much fruit. And yet, at the same time, we are united in Christ. And so we are that, that cluster of grapes bearing fruit together in some wonderful way that Jesus prays the world will see in John chapter 17. A people at peace with one another. A people connected with one another. So, individually... A people who, because they're at peace with God, because they've been made right with Him, reconciled to Him, no longer at enmity with Him. A people that live as a holy people, individually. Consecrated unto Him. As a church, living together in unity. A unity that 
overcomes our sinful tendencies, a unity that exists in the midst of great diversity, a unity that bears witness to the glory of Jesus Christ. Third, in society then, what does it look like for this righteous generation, these people who aren't just a bag of seeds but a cluster of grapes, to live as such in society? And Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2. So I want to read verse 11 and the first part of verse 12. Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, we, again, we looked at all of 2019 we spent in First and Second Peter. And the whole reason we did that was because, I, you know, I believe God was leading us to recognize that we need to realize that there never really was a Christendom in America. There was a great parentheses in which we lived this kind of anomalous Christian life. And now we're re-entering a time that's just like every Christian has experienced throughout history. This sense in which we live in a land that's not our own. That we are in fact sojourners and exiles. Foreign nationals is another way to describe what Peter talks about in 1 Peter. The people who live alongside the citizens of that land but don't enjoy the same rights as the citizen of that land. The people who are looked at as not from here, are you? That's what Peter's saying we should expect. And as such, remember Peter writing to a church that was dealing with Nero as its emperor. Peter's saying, in the midst of all that, I want you to really seek to keep your conduct honorable. In society, Peter's calling us, the Bible calls us, to remember who we are, sojourners and exiles, but to keep our conduct honorable. And there's two things we need to recognize about those words, conduct and honorable. The word conduct actually means way of life. So you could transfer translate it keep your way of life honorable and that's that's significant that's important because again being a christian being righteous isn't just about superficial good conduct the pharisees were experts at that it's about a transformed heart that that living out of this new relationship that we have as those who are reconciled to god we live in a way that gives him glory right so way of life it touches on every aspect of who we are but that word that's translated honorable typically means beautiful. There's another word that Peter could have used for moral goodness. It's the Greek word agathos. He doesn't use that word here. He uses the word that's most typically translated beautiful. And so it is totally legit to transfer uh, to translate 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 11 in the first part of verse 12 Keep your way of life beautiful amongst the Gentiles. Live a beautiful way of life. Yes, a way of life that's characterized by moral goodness, of course. But listen, do recognize, please, that living in obedience to God's command is actually the key to human flourishing. There's no beautiful life apart from following Jesus in the way of his kingdom. 
Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He's calling us to seek to do the will of the Father. Because we are created in God's image, that means that we function best according to our design when we're obeying Him. If you have a car that's intended to run on gasoline and you fill it up with maple syrup, it won't run well. And when you have people that are created in God's image and you fill them up with the desire to go their own way and not God's way, things don't go well, do they? I mean, we all experience that. Human flourishing, a beautiful life, is found as people follow Christ in the way of His kingdom. Live a life that's consecrated to Him. See His commands in Scripture as a way that He has given us to glorify Him. And then recognize that what we need to obey those commands, which we don't innately have, He gives us. And as we do so, we provide a preview of the beautiful life of the kingdom of God. That's the end of the first point. That wasn't so bad, right? Second point, what should the righteous expect? And David tells us, opposition. Opposition. Look at verse 4. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? That is such graphic imagery. Who eat up my people as they eat bread. Two ways in which that's graphic, right? Just think about what happens as you chew up bread and swallow it and your digestive juices do their magic. There's nothing left. It's complete disintegration. These people devour my people like they eat bread. And the other thing about that that's kind of, you know, shocking and, and, and scary is just the thoughtlessness with which we eat bread. Right? We, don't, we don't typically eat bread and think, wow, I can't believe I'm eating bread. Just do it. And what, what David is saying here is that's how the wicked treat God's people. They devour them with just the level of thoughtfulness with which we tend to eat our bread. And with an aim toward complete annihilation. That's what David's talking about. Now, of course, by God's grace, we don't experience that here in the United States. But we know we have brothers and sisters around the world who are right now. And so let's be sure to be mindful. Be praying. Be thankful. But also recognize, to a lesser degree, we do experience this. We experience what it means not to be devoured in terms of kill, but to have our Oh, our reputation, to have our opportunity for advancement at work, to have our intentions slandered, devoured, to experience to some degree, now, perhaps increasingly in the future, marginalization and oppression because of faith in Jesus Christ. And so there is this sense in which we should expect this to happen. We should expect to be spoken ill of, to be spoken against, to in some sense be persecuted. That's not an if 
thing in the Bible. It's a when thing in the Bible for God's people in every generation. So David says we should expect opposition. Now that question, the fact that verse 4 is, is framed as a question is actually an encouragement to us because it tells us something about God's heart, doesn't it? Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord, do not call upon me? That gives us a little bit of a picture of the, I guess, the consternation of God. What do these people think they're doing to my people? But also of his love for his people, his concern for his people. So that's verse 4. David's telling us about opposition that we should expect there. It's also kind of embedded in verse 6. That too, we'll talk about this, that, that too could be translated as a rhetorical question. I'll come to that in a little bit. But just the first part of verse 6, you would shame the plans of the poor. The poor could also be translated the downtrodden. It's referring to his people. You would shame them, is what this says of the, the, the wicked, what they would do to the righteous. So again, the idea of slander. Maybe not outright physical persecution, but that idea of being kept down and put away that many experience in society and we may increasingly experience here. And if we do, then we're just stepping back into the norm of what it means to be a Christian. To be a righteous generation living in a sinful world. We should expect opposition, David tells us. uh, Peter... And the Bible as a whole tells us we should also expect opportunity. With the opposition comes opportunity. So Peter says this. This is back in 1 Peter 2, 11-12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, so when they speak against you as evildoers, there's the opposition, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's the opportunity. That as we live these consecrated lives, as we live as people of peace, people at peace with God, at peace with one another, seeking, as Jeremiah would tell us, the peace and prosperity of the city in which we live, we actually give people an opportunity to give glory to God by putting their trust in Jesus Christ on the day that Jesus Christ returns. Now, back in Psalm 14, look again at verse 4. Because in that rhetorical question, there's also a little revelation concerning what the wicked experience Actually, I want to come come down to verse 5. I'm sorry. David says in verse 5, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. And, you know, what does David mean by there? What there is he referring to? And it could be that David's thinking of some point in the past when David saw God bring deliverance and the wicked, those who are opposed to God, in great terror. But there's no reference to that. There's no indication in the life and the story of David that would kind of directly line up with what David's talking about here. And so commentators also say, you know, it could be as simple as this. Whenever there are people who are seeking to devour God's people, God is with those people and they are in great terror. They're in that place. They're at that time 
They are in great terror. Why? Because well, you know this. You know that before you came to faith in Jesus Christ, there was this inescapable sense that there is a God who exists. No matter how hard you tried to not deny Him, no matter how hard you tried to run away from Him, you came to a point, at some point, by His grace of realizing there is a God who exists. And He's not happy with me. And there was a great sense of, I'm guessing, dread. What must I do to be right with this God? If that's not anything that you've ever experienced, then I, w- I would wonder, have you really understood the grace that is yours in Jesus Christ? What it means to be rescued, redeemed, purchased by His blood that had to be shed because of our sin. And so I think it's right to say that as we interact with people who maybe speak ill of you at work, or look at you kind of sideways because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Or, or maybe even seek to undermine you in various ways. That those are people, first and foremost, created in God's image. And worthy of honor and respect. But also, at some level, are running away from a God that they know is there. And so even as they oppose you, there may be opportunity. And so before those people, Peter would say, maintain a beautiful way of life. Paul says in Romans, bless and do not curse. There is opportunity, even in the face of opposition. Third, what then do the righteous enjoy? What do the righteous enjoy? And David tells us in Psalm 14, verses 5 and 6, and also in verse 7. But let's first look at verses 5 and 6. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Now that verse is the one that kind of launched us into this little mini-series that we're doing. God is with the generation of the righteous. The text actually says, more literally, God is in the generation of the righteous. He is among them in every place and in every age. The righteous generation enjoys the presence of God. The righteous generation also enjoys the protection of God. So take a look at verse 6. Again, rhetorical question here, more literally. You would shame the plans of the poor? The Lord is his refuge. So it's kind of like, are you crazy? (laughs) These are God's people. He is with them. He is among them. They are the apple of his eye. You would seek to shame them? Good luck with that. Now, of course, we face opposition. Of course, we are shamed. Of course, God's people are beaten down. But not forever. One day, every knee will bow. And one day, every head will be lifted. And every tear will be wiped away. And there will be nothing but joy and gladness. Because... God is present with his people. He is protecting his people. And he will one day, and this is what David tells us wrapping out this psalm, he will one day call them to himself to be with them forever. 
Verse 7, Psalm 14, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Zion is God's holy hill. It's a place where He has established His King. David is praying for the true King to come and bring salvation to God's people. The word that's used for salvation here is the word Yeshua. Sound familiar? It's the word from which Jesus comes because Jesus is the king who will save his people by laying down his life for them. Because remember, none are righteous. No, not one. What David saw in part, we see clearly. Salvation did come out of Zion in Jesus, the righteous one, so that all who look to him in faith might be saved. There's a book I just started reading this morning, actually, and the, in, the, in the first chapter there's a quote I wanted to share with you. So I love it that I can, you know, make little adjustments to the sermon at the last minute, which I'm always doing. But anyway, Chris Wright in The Mission of God's People says this, It's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. The church was made for mission. Now everything I've been talking about this morning, what it means to live as a righteous generation, it comes back to this idea of following Jesus in the way of his kingdom, of being on mission with Jesus, of not looking for Jesus to give us something to do, but following Jesus in what he is doing to build up his church, to advance his kingdom, so the gospel might be proclaimed to the end of the earth, because at that day Jesus will come. And until that day, we are called to go into all of our workplaces, all of our, our homes, all of our neighborhoods, and seek to be people of peace. People who experience God's shalom, his peace. We are restored to a relationship with him. We are living as people of peace in our relationships with one another. And we are seeking to bring the wholeness that will characterize the kingdom of God to bear in all of our relationships here on earth. We are called to be set apart. Consecrated unto God. Set apart, but showing forth. Showing forth the kingdom that is coming. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us in Acts that your servant David served you and his generation and then he died. And it's a jarring thought because we often forget that we only have so much time. Time to glorify you on this earth as the broken and redeemed people, the glorious ruins that we are, but called to be light in the midst of darkness and salt in the midst of decay. God, would you make us a righteous generation that lives for your glory in all that we do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.